hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I started as a, as a freshman at the University of Texas at Austin, Hookham, uh, I was... <laughs> where was that? Where was that? Where that out there? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was an economics major. So that's when I started. I was an economics major. And um, the reason for it was I was actually trying to be practical for the first and last time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that I was, interested, I was interested in philosophy in high school, but I'd read this book uh, called The Worldly Philosophers by Robert Halbronner, and it was about uh, David Ricardo and, and Adam Smith and, and others and the early um, ec- economists who were really philosophers more than economists. And I thought, well, this, is, this will be a great way. I can, I can think in a rigorous way, but also be compensated for it in some way. Um, but that was, that was my original plan. God got in the way of it, but I was still interested in economic theory over the years. And, and when, I, when I heard my call to ministry and decided to you know, listen to God and, and pursue it and, and plan on going to seminary, I, I set myself a kind of a goal of, of reading through the Bible afresh. And I had done it before in high school, but I was going to be a little more focused and try to, to follow through on this and prepare myself. And as I, as I studied it in this new kind of way, what I noticed was all the economic language throughout the Bible. There's, there's a lot of it, and not, not in ways, many of the ways we, we remember. Um, one is uh, in Joshua 13. And so Joshua comes right after the, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and so they enter the promised land. And there's this, this powerful moment where a lot of chapters of God telling the tribes where their land is, and specifically in like these details. And Moses provided, this is from 13, Moses provided for the clans of the Reubenite tribe. Their territory ran from Eroer to the rim of Arnon Valley and the city in the middle of the ravine and the whole plateau as far as Madiba. It included Heshbon and all its cities on the plateau, and Dibon, and, and Bathambal, Bamathbal, that's a tricky one, Bamathbal, Bel, Beth, Baal, Maon, Jahaz, Kedemoth, Mepheth, Kirathiam, Sibma, it goes on and on. It's one of those passages lay people love to read in front of church. It's like, wait, pastor, you want me to read this one? <laughs> But it really, like, it goes on and on and on. There's a number of chapters in Joshua, and it reads almost like uh, ancient uh, um, title uh, rulings. If you ever, like, like old, old titles and, and display, and it's, it's this, like, the details of, of real estate. It's real land that is designated in this. And many of, many of our Bibles have maps of, of the Holy Land, and they show, one of the maps often shows, like, where the different tribes were. But it wasn't just, you know, like a colored map. This is, like, real property that is God is offering to these people. And when we read all these words that are really hard to translate into English, there's oftentimes it's easy to, you know, kind of dismiss it. What does that have to do with me? Or we can receive, what is God? God cares about such things. Realize that God cares about such things. This, this matters. This matters. Even in, for words, it's hard for us to understand. Biblical real estate matters. And it gets, it gets deeper when we get to the famous story of Ruth. And the famous story of Ruth is that she's, um, she marries uh, Naomi's sons, and Naomi's husband died, and the sons die, and Naomi goes back to where her family is from in the promised land. And Ruth follows her. And so both all the, the men are dead for them, but Ruth, Ruth follows her even though she has no, no bound for it. And there's this language of Boaz as a redeemer. It's one of the first uses of the word redeemer. 
And what it, what it means in this context is purely economic. It has to do with the intricacies of ancient real estate in the Bible, is that you couldn't sell your land. There weren't, there weren't any brokers. You couldn't sell your land to just about anyone. Because the land was given to the tribe, it had to go within the tribe. And so the redeemer, uh, the relative redeemer, was the, the next closest relative who could have the opportunity to get the land. It couldn't be publicly, um, publicly sold at market, an auction. And so that's who Boaz was. Boaz was the next closest relative to Naomi's husband who had a claim on that land. Redemption wasn't about uh, eternal salvation in the language of Ruth, but a highly functional economic transaction. And then another example that, that really hits home and what we're going to really focus on today is debt, debt and debtors throughout the Bible. Usury, or an interest-bearing loan, is universally condemned in the Bible, but the more prominent issue is in the Lord's Prayer, and oftentimes in our more contemporary translations of the Lord's Prayer, when it says, forgive us our debts. And many, many of us, including me, bristle at that because we're raised on the good King James, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's a little more musical. But the language of debt is, is a much more literal understanding of, of the Greek in the Lord's Prayer and what is going on there. And Jesus isn't just talking about metaphorical debts, actual debts. And I think when we read this line in the creed, I, forgive us the, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. If we get too far away from the language of debt, we get too far away from the language of mercy in the Bible. My friends, we're continuing our series on the Apostles' Creed, the historic doctrinal statement of faith, looking at the creed, how it encapsulates Scripture and offers us God's vision of who God is, how the world was created, why we are in need, how Jesus saves us, and what we can do about it. And today, this phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The root word of, of economics comes from Greek. It's used often in the Bible, ekonomia. It means a home. It's um, oikos means home, and nomos means like the law or the study of. And so it, was, um, it's, it comes out of this language, but sometimes we, we look back at history and assume like a long time ago was much simpler than our times. Um, but it's, economics has always been complicated. 600 years ago, economics was very complicated. For example, Christopher Columbus's journey to America was funded through a complex series of debts, Instruments. There were, there were a lot of financial, creative financial instruments that we would you know, relate to today because part of it, they had to get around the usury laws, that there was these usury laws so they couldn't officially charge interest. So it was how these banks were trying to um, profit off of lending without officially charging interest and getting, um, getting the Pope to get mad at them. And so there's these very complex loans that were going on. The economics of the ancient world was also quite complicated. One of the better theories for why the Roman Empire collapsed is because communication between um, lenders and debtors broke down because of barbarian entanglements. So the roads weren't as fast, and so you couldn't hear back from the person you loaned money to. So people stopped lending money, and that stopped the flow of credit in the ancient world and stopped the empire. Credit debt is complicated in the ancient world, and we need to hold on to this language of debt when we talk about the forgiveness of sins because it is all throughout the Bible especially in Aramaic, the, the language that Jesus spoke. The, language, um, the word for sin in Aramaic is also the word for debt. And it's often, it, it's pretty, pretty striking 
um, when you realize the kind of the, the language that, that spoke of Scripture, the way that people would read Scripture and how they would understand. In Exodus 10, 17, it says, Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. In the Aramaic version, it says, Remit the debt of my sins. Remit the debt of my sins. Sin as debt is found especially in the parable of the king in Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, they brought to him a servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. That's a lot of bags of gold. Because the servant didn't have enough to pay it back, the master ordered that he should be sold along with his wife and children and everything he had and that the proceeds should be used as payment. But the servant fell down, kneeled before him and said, please be patient with me and I'll pay you back. And the master had compassion on that servant, released him and forgave the loan. And when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 coins. He grabbed them around the throat and said, pay me back what you owe me. Then his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he threw him in prison until he paid back the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deeply offended. They came and told their master all that had happened. His master called the first servant and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you appealed to me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servants just as I had mercy on you? His master was furious and handed him over to the guard responsible for punishing prisoners until he had paid the whole debt. This is, this is debt language. This is not, it's not like adding it to the Bible. It's like it's, it's hard for us to read that and realize that Jesus isn't talking about a meta- metaphor here. He's, he's making his explanation of mercy works in this way. It is easy to, to make sin abstract. And when we talk, but when we talk about the forgiveness of debt, we get concrete really quickly. If a friend is rude to you one day, it might be easy, easy to like, you know, forgive and forget and move on with your life. If a friend owes you money, it's, it's kind of hard. You kind of have to deal with that. You kind of have to deal with that. As well, if, if someone owes you 50 bucks and you forgive it, it's like, okay, that's, that's okay. You know, we kind of, kind of get there. You might say it's not even worth it having the conversation. It's an awkward conversation. It's not much money. It's not even worth it. If, um, if you owe someone $500,000, and they say, don't worry about it. You're good for it. That's a little different relationship going, going on there. Or let's look at a house in an area. I looked at, looked at Zillow this week. Look at a house down the road for $2.3 million. What if, what if you, you, you get there, you, you get the house, you get a loan, you get it all set, and the bank calls you one day. It's like, you know what? You're a good fella. I'm going to forgive you the loan. Just like that. It's like, that's a, that's a very different position to, to be in. That's a really concrete position that you were in this position of debt. You had a note that you had to eventually pay off, but then it's gone. How does that feel? Now, one of the ways this might be discussed in economic language is the language of the problem of moral hazard. And moral hazard is this idea if you just keep on forgiving and bailing out institutions, they're going to start counting on the bail, bailout. They're going to be reckless with their, with their resources and get into situations that they need to be bailed out from because they know you're going to back them up. This language was used a lot in 2008 during that crisis and, and many times after. So you don't want to fall in prey to moral hazard in, in modern economics. And yet, if we did what we say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive my debts as I forgive those who have debt against me, this would seem to be exactly what causes moral hazard. 
And so the hinge of the good news of Jesus Christ comes down to this response. What do we do if our debts have been taken away? If we find ourselves in this miraculous position that we used to owe this this great debt, but now it is gone. Do we act in such a way as contemporary economic theory would assume? Do we act even more recklessly? Knowing that God will bail us out no matter what, do we think, ah, that God's a sucker. I'm going to do this sin, this sin, and this sin. That'll be great. doesn't matter because God gots me. Or do we, do we actually change? Do we realize the, the amazing miracle of that mercy? To believe in the forgiveness of sins is to believe in this radical possibility of change. This, this, this radical, I mean, to the root of the matter. Radical means to the root, to the root of who we are. Can we be changed? Can the direction of our life actually go in a different way? Can people change? Can my, my giant ledger of sin, what I owe God, what I owe others, can that be taken away? My whole life, I've been building up this debt. I've been taking out loans. I've been taking out loans of sin, these sin loans of the ways I've, I've harmed others. I've, I've lied. I've turned away. I've not loved in those situations. By not loving people, by avoiding loving people, by not praising God in all things, I've been building up this ledger of sin. And it's an act of faith to believe that that's going to be wiped clean. Like a debt that you no longer know, that you check your account and you're like, oh my gosh, I have so much to go. And then the next day it is gone. Where did it go? Where did it go? Now that's a different sort of economics than the world we live in. Divine Economics is different from the world economic system. A bank that forgave every loan would not be in business very long. A car dealership that pulled an Oprah every week and said, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, would not be in business for very long. But God shows us in the life of Christ that forgiveness he offers has this this incredible inefficiency to it. Divine justice can have this great inefficiency to it. It's not fair. I mean, I deserve to be punished for the ways I've harmed people. I deserve to be punished for the ways I've ignored others, for the ways I've turned my back on people in my life, for the ways I've passed people on the street and ignored them, for the ways I've rationalized my choices, justified myself to myself in a way that keeps me less accountable to others, ignoring the consequences of my actions, justice demands it. And yet, and yet the forgiveness of sins is not just this letting go of a few things here or there, things I might remember, but a radical transformation of how we view ourselves. More than anything, how we view God. We may think to ourselves, wait, God, God is willing to take the risk of forgiving me? What if I'm not worth it? What if I don't deserve it? What if I'm not good on it? What if I can't actually pay this note back to God? God is willing to bear that risk, even if my bond rating is junk. (laughs) Then God asks us for the next big thing. To bear that risk for others. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. That as we is enormous. It's a huge 
as we. God offers us forgiveness but compels us to offer it to others. This is the crux of the parable in Matthew 18. It is hypocrisy to receive mercy, to receive forgiveness, and not to give it, give it back. It may be good business practice to seek the forgiveness of your loans but not actually forgive the loans other people owe back to you, but it is not how God offers us life. Mercy is not a cudgel to be held over the head of others, but a gift none of us deserve. May you remember that whatever debt you are carrying in your soul, whatever you think is too much, it is not too much for God. And, and those people in your life who are distant from God in this way because they may feel like there's God cannot possibly love him, none of it is too much for God. If you, are think, if you think you are not worth it, you are worth it to God. This is what it means to believe in the forgiveness of sins. It is not just a good notion. It is a radical act of faith. Let us pray. God of compassion, you have reconciled us in Jesus Christ, who is our peace. Enable us to live as Jesus lived, breaking down walls of hostility and healing enmity. Give us grace to make peace with those from whom we are divided that, forgiven and forgiving, we may ever be one in Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever, one holy and divided trinity. Amen.